You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. It appears we all share the same moral network and systems and tend to respond in similar ways to similar issues. The way we differ, not our behavior, but our theories about why we respond the way we do and the weight that we give those different moral systems. Understanding that our theories and the value that we place on them are the source of all our conflicts would go a long way, it seems to me, in helping people with different belief systems to get along. Our brain has evolved neurocircuitry that enables us to thrive in a social context. Even as infants, we make judgments and choices and behave based on the actions of others. We prefer others who are helpful or even neutral to others who hinder. We understand when another needs help, and we engage in altruistic helping. Our extensive mirror neuron system gives us the ability to understand the intentions and emotions of others, and from this information, our interpreter module weaves together a theory about others. We also use the same module to weave a story about ourselves. As our social contact changes through the accumulation of knowledge about our very nature, we may want to change how we live and experience our social life, especially with respect to justice and punishment. This leads us to the story about how we incorporate social dynamics into personal choice, how we figure out the intentions, emotions, and goals of others in order to survive and understand how social process constrain individual minds. Michael Gazaniga is a professor of psychology and the director for the SAG Center for the Study of Mind at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He's the director of the Summer Institute in Cognitive Neuroscience, president of the Cognitive Neuroscience Institute, and is the director of the MacArthur Law and Neuroscience Project. His books include Human, The Science Behind What Makes Your Brain Unique, The Ethical Brain, The Science of Our Moral Dilemmas, and The Mind's Past. His new book is Who's in Charge? Free Will and the Science of the Brain. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you. This is such an interesting book, and as I read this book, I began to think back on the many interviews I've done with writers of fiction, and as I've done and accumulated these interviews, it's come to me that I thought, well, humans are really a narrative species, and I think that's kind of the essence of this book, in a sense. Well, I talk at length in the book on this system we seem to have in the, our brain, in the left part of our brain, called the interpreter. And what it's trying to do and what it does for us is try to figure out the reasons we do, the way we, the reasons we act, the way and what we do, the reasons we feel, the way we feel. And it takes all those responses, which may be coming quite independently, sort of coming out of us, as it were, but once it's out on the table, this, this interpreter tries to build a story, a narrative, a center that explains uh, all the things that happen to us, uh, both internally, externally, and, and in the world. And that narrative is, uh, is what we wind up thinking is us, is ourself. And we're very, we're very uh, big believers in, the, in that self, and we think that self is in there calling all the shots on our actions. So the whole thing is based uh, 
for me, with this discovery that there is this special system in the left brain that, that does all of this. We are story. Yeah, we are story. And and I suppose when, over the years, uh, living with this idea, <laughs> this, this doesn't maybe sound uh, happy, but you see story everywhere, and you see what it is, and you appreciate the person generating the story is doing just that. There are stories. That's an interesting perception. <laughs> now, this book came out of the Gifford Lectures, and I'd like you to just talk a little bit about the Gifford Lectures and preparing the lectures and doing the lectures about the subject in this book, and then your writing process as a storyteller, translating those stories that you lectured about into the story we read in the book. So the, these, the invitation for these lectures came in 2007, and I was shocked. They're a famous set of lectures. I must have the wrong Michael Gazzaniga. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, as uh, I realized that this was serious business, it, it literally took me uh, two years to produce six lectures. Uh, if you have to give a six coherent lectures on, uh, or you try to make them coherent, on what you do, it pretty much drains you of all your your knowledge. And uh, and so I chose to, uh, in preparing the sixth lecture, I, uh, I chose to uh, do them uh, with the modern aids of PowerPoint and video and show actual patients doing uh, experiments and that kind of thing. And uh, it was a long uh, and uh, uh, hard process. And and then the event came for two weeks in Edinburgh, and uh, it was a very exciting event. Uh, uh, and for over two weeks, one, one gave the lectures. And the uh, experience of it was such that uh, at the time, uh, that could have been the end of it. You, I, I was not obligated to do anything else. But I came back and decided that a, a book was called for. And uh, it's basically those six lectures uh, turned into a literary form. So there's new stuff in the book, and there's modifications of the uh, actual uh, stuff I put in the lectures, which are, by the way, are all they're all captured on uh, YouTube, and and they're they're all up there to see. And and the the advantage of the YouTube versions is that there's uh, there's the videos that you can see of the, of the things I'm talking about. So anyway, that whole process uh, led to the, the writing of the book. And then the, the writing of the book, um, uh, I, I, in my uh, uh, dotage, I've uh, tried to make it fun to read. And <laughs> I figured my, that way they might get read. And uh, so uh, I try to keep a light hand throughout the book uh, and, uh, and get across yet these big ideas that I think everybody uh, – is involved in thinking one way or the other, whether they like it or not. We're all thinking about who we are, what's the nature of our condition, how do we think about things like moral and personal responsibility. Uh, if we Is all the new knowledge of neuroscience driving us to sort of a bleak view of, of the nature? And if not, why not? And so forth and so on. So so just to wrap the, that whole thing up, the, the I, I don't... Th it was the occasion of, to, of the invitation to write the lectures that you tried to put all of it together into a uh, larger picture. 
I don't think it necessarily, the experimental scientist sees uh, through the course of their life and the experiments they do, they're interested in particular things for particular reasons. But trying to weave a story to what it means in a larger uh, canvas uh, would not have occurred without the the uh, request to try and do it. <laughs> well, I, I'm really glad that you got that request because I think the larger story is really important. And I think this book is is really important in terms of what it tells us about ourselves, but also just as a book, in many ways, given that this is the story of the source of our stories, mm -hmm. this is a book that any storyteller should read or anybody who experiences a story should read because we're, as you said, we're a story-based species. Now, one of the things that, that interested me is, is that um, neuroscience, as you say, has become deterministic. So uh, I'd like you to elaborate on that idea a little bit. Um, and I think this is this is not a new idea. Uh, Kurt mm -hmm. Vonnegut, Breakfast of Champions. We're just walking chemical reactions. I, I've lived with that book in the back of my mind for many years. The, that's a good point. The, of course, the idea of determinism has been around a long, long time, and that things are determined and that we're just along for the ride is not is hardly a new idea. It's kind of uh, how one starts their intellectual life in college, sitting around and thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> all the stuff we're learning makes it sound like we're determined. I think what—and uh, I've found in the course of discussing this book, actually everybody has an opinion on this— <laughs> And they kind of just want your vote on it. You know, mm -hmm. they, are you a determinist or not? Do you believe in free will? And they get the answer, and then they go about their merry way because they already have their answer. And I think that's important to notice. But the, so the point of the book and the point of, of this is that it's a journey I'm trying to capture, that when you really have a larger picture uh, of of neuroscience, and you see all of the mechanisms that's unearthed. You see how the brain's built and with the complexity built into it. You see the stuff we sort of come from the factory with. You see the fact that we're not a, a, a unitary system with one thing in there pulling the levers and creating all the actions that we produce, that we're really kind of a, a, a term they use these days is multi-agent system in there working at different time scales, and, and all of this stuff is coming on. And when you see all of that and appreciate it, and you can't hide from it, because that's what you're doing and reading and studying all day long, uh, then the notion that neuroscience is developing a mechanistic understanding of the brain is felt as opposed to just read about. And that's a big difference, is when you finally feel it, they say, oh, that is how we're built then your uh, acceptance or examination of question, well, what is now, okay, if we're really built that way and there's all these things acting different timescales working to produce a unitary output, what does that mean for this little uh, personal uh, uh, and very human feeling that we're freely in charge of all this stuff? What does that mean? Well, it means it's just not right. And in fact, the idea makes no sense. In fact, it's a bad idea, and let's get it out of here. And then say, well, what's the implication of that, and so forth. So that's that's where I came from, and that's what I try to go into in the book. Well, one of the things I think that is 
is really interesting about this book as a book. This is a, a, a this is a tough gig to write. This is tough, and, and I think one of the things you do very well is to simplify it and to to bring it down to to part of the to a place where the average person can understand it. But I think that goes for your whole approach to science. When I was looking at you know the experiments that you did. Um, these are not experiments that involve a lot of technology, a lot of number crunching. Your experiments and your whole approach to n neuroscience is a, a kind of a logic problem. You divide it up. You divide and conquer. Say it's A or B and then make your deductions from there. I think that's a very interesting approach. You know, uh, it's funny you, you mentioned that because you're right. Uh, and... Um, uh, I've had the privilege of knowing many, many great scientists who are extremely uh, adept at quantitative mathematical uh, procedures and knowledge. And the very best of them never mention it. They always are talking about the logic and flow of ideas. Now, the difference between me and them is that I can keep up with them on the when we're talking about logic and flow of ideas, but I can't keep up with them on the math. So the the, the but the point is the math gets into a, a subtopic. If you if you enter that domain, and it's very important that people do, of course, but it then the conversation goes to the intricacies of of the correctness of your analysis, mathematic of the mathematics of it. When what you were really initially interested in is the it, and not the maybe the math for the it, so it's a it's a different a different thing. And I've been comfortable with the way I approach things, uh, and and uh, and do exactly what you say. I I do very simple experiments and try to elicit a phenomenon and then try to understand it. Well, the things you've done, the experiments you've done have been nothing short of brilliant and groundbreaking. And, and I, I, I think one thing that I'd like you to discuss to, to talk about is um, uh, causality, because mm -hmm. we have two kinds of causality, upward causality and downward causality. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to explain the difference between those two approaches as regards free will in the mind. Yeah. So this is a, a central point, and it's very hard to communicate and it's very hard to think about, and it's very controversial. So it's got the whole, <laughs> it's got the whole deal right here. So the, basically, the notion is that we have a layered system. Everything from molecules to cells, the systems of neurons, to all the way up to uh, uh, mind, and then the social layer above us. So it's, it's very much a layered system. And the question is, how do the layers interact? And the one we're interested in is the uh, brain mind. Uh, interaction. How does the brain produce mind? And so upwardly causal, the thought is that the neurons and configurations and firing in particular ways produces uh, the mental states that you and I enjoy. But the further notion is that those mental states constrain the very system that produced it. So there's a downward effect, a downward causation. Now, some people argue that we should not use the word causation in there, but we should just capture the fact that those two different layers are trying and do interact in some way that needs a new vocabulary to discuss. And to give a concrete example that kind of works is uh, the hardware-software layers of your everybody's laptop. So there's the hardware layer in the laptop, 
And it's useless, of course, without the software coming in and animating the hardware. And the software is useless without the hardware. The hardware is useless without the software. And somehow when they interact, you pro it produces function PowerPoint, your PowerPoint program. Now, capturing how they interact and what's the what is really going on when those two systems interact is the tough problem, and it needs a new vocabulary. And the same that same problem is true at the mind brain or brain mind, if you want to look at it from bottom up. Uh, anyway, so okay, what's an example of top down? What are you talking about there? Well, lots of examples, but one that kind of sticks is uh, uh, some well done studies where they look at people who are depressed, and they give them uh, SSRIs, uh, a pharmacological agent, antidepressant, just for some simplicity. And they do so well. They, their recovery is of a certain kind and certain duration and so forth. And then they take another group of people equally depressed, and they give them talk therapy, uh, just behavioral therapy through talk. And they get better and so far in a certain kind and a certain duration. And then with all the proper controls run, they put them together. They get talk therapy and the drugs. What happens then? And you get a far greater uh, recovery rate, far length of time. The outcome is, is much better. So there seems to be a top-down, bottom-up interaction. And we just observe it. I mean, that's just, that's just clinical data, and, and it's controlled for additive effects and all that stuff. It's, just, it's something there. What is it? What, what do we mean by that? And that is kind of where we are at. We're just observing it. And now the, the question is, can we, can we really understand how that mental state is changing the upward effects of the uh, pharmacologic agents? The, 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 is, how do bottom down and, and, and upward causation interact? That's the question. I don't have the answer. But I think that's where we are, and that's where we go in the future, trying to get at that question. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the experiments that led us to our understanding of the brain and, and you know, our the evolution of our understanding of the brain. Originally, we had uh, people who – John Watson had this uh, blank slate, the tabula rasa kind of idea where give me 12 infants and I can turn them in, one into a, a president, one into a violin player, one into a general, whoever. I'll just raise them right. John Watson uh – appeared on the scene at a time when the leading brain guys were saying that the brain had no specificity, no unique structure, that it, any part of the brain could carry out any function. So the very famous physiologic psychologist, as they were called in those days, uh, Carl Lashley, held this point of view, that uh, an extensive series, brilliant series of studies on a rat determined that uh, that any part of the brain uh, didn't seem to affect the learning of a maze. And so he came up with a notion that all parts of the brain were equipotential. There was no specialization. There was no modularity at all. And Watson was, they talked, these guys. And they said, well, this brain can do anything. And so, by the way, reinforcement's important, so I can turn anybody into anything. That was the view. And then the premier uh, 
neurobiologist at the time, a guy by the name of Paul Weiss at the University of Chicago, had a similar view. And he had the idea that uh, function precedes form so that you take the example of uh, when a nerve grows out to an arm, does the nerve grow to the arm because it's an arm neuron trying to get to the arm so it can do its job? Or does the nerve grow freely, happens to hit an arm, and then as the arm gets used, it stamps back on the nervous system, okay, you are an arm neuron, right? <laughs> that, that was the view. And these uh-huh. guys were all, that was the deal. Well, he had a good experiment with a salamander, too. That's right. That's right. And the famous salamander experiments uh, uh, revealing the same sort of thing. Well, what what happened was uh, my mentor, Roger Sperry, was a graduate student of Paul Weiss. And uh, I like to say that uh, you know, one of the things about scientists is that, uh, so you know, they, people romantically uh, say scientists, oh, those guys are really curious. And, they're, they, and uh, there, there was actually a f- f- uh, famous physicist here at Berkeley, Louis uh, Salazar, who said, no, that's not scientists aren't that curious. They just don't believe something works the way somebody said it works. They believe it works another way. And that's what motivates them. <laughs> yeah, contrary. <laughs> right, right. Contrary guys. Well, that works. So, so it works. So Sperry says, I'll take this the way it works. And so what he did, he launched a famous series of experiments. Started out simply, he took frogs' eyes and rotated them surgically, 180 degrees. So what was up was now down, and what was down was now up. And so what that meant was... Uh, Normally, you hold a little fly in front of a frog, and the frog sends its tongue out and picks off the fly and eats it. But with the eyes rotated, it would send it off in the wrong direction because all the information was wired and telling the frog's brain it's here when it's not there. You know, Frogs never learned. They never could reverse themselves, whereas these guys' theories would predict, oh, well, after a few trials, the frog will flip everything, and it'll all be... Uh, uh, the, the world will be ordered again. So that didn't work. So then he went on and and continued to do a gazillion experiments that showed basically that neurons, when they're trying to get from point A to point B, have a specificity to them, and they grow through all kinds of foreign material and find their target. There's a chemo-affinity and that uh, gradients that allows the neurons to get from point A to point B. It's in the genome that that nerve has to hook up to that structure. It's not random and diffuse and, and back-stamped, as Weiss said. So you come built very intricately. And that's was sort of the, the, the strong Sperry view. The, the strong Sperry view. And, and it's more or less been confirmed uh, in neurobiology in the last 50 years, and it's still a very hot and interesting topic. So with that, really just a sea change in how we thought about brains and what, how they were built, you begin to think, this is a fine machine. This thing is really, really terrific, and it uh, comes with a lot of information already in it, apparently. And so then the psychologists and others started asking, well, what is what does it come with? And then people start studying young animals, young babies, and find out uh, there's all kinds of stuff that they can't, couldn't possibly have learned, but it's, they seem to be reactive to already. And so then it sort of answers the question, what comes f- from the factory? 
what's built into this thing. And then that story starts and it continues today to all kinds of interesting ideas. Well, as you say, uh, nature prefers um, unconscious uh, knowledge it, that works fastest. And I was thinking about this in terms of, uh, of all things, artificial intelligence. One of my favorite writers, a Polish writer named Stanislaw Lem, and he talks about the develop, how they tried to develop artificial intelligence and they could never get it. And then they decided, why not develop artificial instinct? It appeared millions of years earlier and works perfectly well. And that's exactly kind of what you say, that these instincts, the things that are built into us, I mean, those really help us. And you talk about the uh, what the wallabies know, who have never, ever, ever seen predators, mm-hmm. know the, the shape of those predators. Yeah. They're, they're, you know, they're... they're Everybody recognizes from their high school courses on that animals are full of instincts, right? Mm-hmm. What they forget is what William James said, is that then the animal with the most instincts is us. <laughs> now, have, that's a really interesting observation. We have thousands of them, and we're constantly uh, uh, catching ourselves uh, reacting one way or another because these things have been laid down and are in our nervous system somehow, and they get expressed. Interestingly, as a side point, no one can uh, point to a, the instantiation of an instinct in the brain. I mean, we don't know. There, there's the circuit for lust, or there's the circuit for, for that one right there. That's not how it works yet. We know they're in there. We've measured them. We see them. They're there. Or they're not influenced a lot by uh, outside uh, uh, manipulations. So we know they're there. But but it's it, it's just a, it speaks to how. Neuroscience, on one hand, knows so much, and on another hand, <laughs> doesn't know a lot, and uh, uh, on a lot of topics yet. So it's it's just kind of it's it's a sobering thought. <laughs> well, it's interesting to know how much we don't know. That's important to keep in mind. Uh, absolutely, I think it's very important to keep in mind. Uh, and and here's why: because uh, I mean, this is for young scientists. There is so much technology involved today in doing experimentation. And it is so intense and, and uh, complex that, the, as I said earlier, the discussions will easily fall off to discussing those intricacies and not why you're studying this particular thing. And, and so it, it has to be uh, – uh, you just have to remember, actually, the point you're studying, we, we get a little bit of information on that, but now we should – Think about the next problem, and not all these intricacies. And people begin to think, "Oh, this isn't, aren't the intricacies the thing that are important?" <laughs> no, they're not. They're actually, well, it's just you got to learn that, but it's not what why you're doing it. Well, I think your reading about your experiments in this book is is such a a wonderful experience because you are so good at explaining them. So I'd like you to talk about experiments that you developed. My, boggles my mind as an undergraduate for split brain patients. Explain who the sp- split brain patients were and how just a series of kind of like logical tests revealed so much about the nature and the location of brain processes. I mean, it's it's brilliant. And, and I can see the influence, too, as I was going back and over my notes. I could see the influence of Sperry's work on your work because he used a similar kind of logical deduction process. You took it in a different direction that has literally changed the way we view ourselves. Well, uh 
yeah, I should say that I learned it at Sperry's uh, feet that that uh, he uh, he too was uh, uh, was an idea person and did these beautiful experiments. But he always was dis- discussed them at the level of, of ideas and always knew why he was doing them. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I benefited from well, when I arrived in his lab. Uh, I be- I had benefited from uh, the animal work on split brains. Uh, uh, full going full blast at the time, and the studies were intricate and and wonderful. Uh, but I was basically presented uh, with a situation: we're going to operate on this forty-eight-year-old uh, war veteran and split his brain, and we want you to figure out uh, what's going on with him. <laughs> I said, okay, and so I was the right guy at the right place at the right. To Jerry Jeff Walker. <laughs> song uh never mind uh so i was there and um the the uh, the context at the time was that there was a series of patients that had had their brains uh, split in the 40s and they hadn't discovered anything they didn't see any of these dramatic disconnection effects and and their works, that work, the early 40 work, uh, stood in contrast to the, the more recent animal work where they were getting these big disconnection effects. If you trained one side of a brain to do something, the other side didn't know about it. If you trained one hand of a monkey to learn something, the other hand didn't know about it. Uh, and so there was this already this sense, well, admit there's something weird about human brains, the way they're wired, that it doesn't show all these effects we're getting in cats and monkeys and so forth. So... Uh, so then adding to that was, by chance, uh, prior to, to my arriving at Caltech to start this human testing, was uh, other people in the lab had looked at a, a young boy who had had a genesis of the callosum. And a genesis is uh, children who uh, are not born with this structure. And so maybe they're naturally occurring, as it were, uh, split-brain-type patients. Well, it turns out uh, they don't show many of these effects either. And so it was really kind of, you know, w- will anything be seen on these humans? It was kind of an open question. So anyway, the, the patient was brought up to Caltech and, uh, and preoperatively, and uh, we, <laughs> we worked in this room at, uh, you know, minimal engineering with the pipes all still showing and everything. And, and I flipped a rope over one of the pipes and, and got some back projection screen and an old picture frame and I nailed it up and a projector from the back and I started flashing things in the left and right visual field which meant that it would go to the left or right hemisphere if someone if you fixate a point anything to the left of the point goes to your right brain anything right of the point goes to your left brain that's that's true for all of us so the first test obviously to do in this guy is to see was he all normal normally functioning so we did all those tests, and he was. He was just like you and me. Uh, everything was working. His callosum, obviously, uh, if that was going to be the mechanism, uh, was working fine. And he could identify things in each hand. He was just utterly normal. And uh, so we got that done, and then he goes off and uh, has his surgery. And about a month after the surgery, he comes back to, to be tested. The, the surgery is to help uh, prevent uh, grand mal epileptic seizures. The surgery absolutely is based on uh, to, uh, to prevent inter- to, to prevent epileptic uh, seizures from spreading from one half brain to the other. Mm-hmm. 
And the notion was if you kept one hemisphere seizure-free, that maybe there would not be a generalized loss of consciousness and the patient, therefore, could could get through the, the attack and be better off. And um, so that that was the reasoning, and um, and that's why the surgery was carried out. And by and large, the good news was that, that it worked. That, mm-hmm. that part is good. Our part of the story was, well, w- what are the neuropsychological consequences of this? What 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 can these people do and not do? So, <laughs> rolled them back into the room with TV screen hanging over the pipe. I mean the back projection screen, and uh, had him fixate to the point and flashed a picture in the right visual field, which went to his left speech hemisphere. He named it just like you and I would. And then we flashed a picture into the left visual field, which now went to his right hemisphere, which was now disconnected from his left hemisphere. And he said, I don't see anything. What? You don't see anything? Flash another picture over there. I don't see anything. Go back and flash your picture in the right visual field. Goes like, oh yeah, that's an apple. Okay, go back. To, I don't see anything. <laughs> so then, this was goosebump time. I mm-hmm. mean, this this is this is earth shaking discovery. This earth shaking discovery, and it's just over the years you will discover when you're ever in a situation where you're kind of playing with consciousness it gives you the goosebumps because you 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 kind of like knowing too much you know it's there's a it, godlike feeling oh there's something i don't, I don't know what well I, I mean it must be kind of at that level and yeah. and in terms of discovery that's an earth-shaking scientific discovery from a, a simple logic experiment a simple very simple and then came the the corker which was uh we finally said, uh, uh, so just point to things you see. And uh, right then, uh, he was able to, on subsequent trials, instead of naming things, the right hand would point to things flashed in the right visual field, and the left hand would point to things flashed in the left visual field, even though he said there wasn't anything over there. <laughs> and that started framework for launched. 50 years of research of what are the capacities of that separated hemisphere? What can it do? What can't the other one do? Will there be change through time? Uh, what interactions might still exist even though these perceptual ones obviously don't cross over with this surgery and so forth? Uh, what about attention? What about emotion? What about, is there a cost of memory? What about intelligence? What about conscious awareness? What? It was, <laughs> it was the start of of a lot of work and uh, uh, it it was great. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. You're talking. <laughs> well, that that's one of the things that's that's so interesting about this book. Just to read, and one of the things I I did want to hear you talk about just the 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 sense of of a huge uh, window into to what we it means to be human. Now, a, as you worked, you discovered that the uh, left hand of the brain uh, has one talent and the right hand has another. And this has all sorts of implications. I'd like you to talk about what these different uh, functions are and how specifically you've located them and, and how they interact. So uh, uh, so the right 
and left half of the brain story came out of all this earlier work. And, uh, and it basically was that the left half of the brain was dominant for language and speech. And it, uh, in a way, it confirmed a lot of classic neurology where that had always been known because of lesions. Uh, people would have a stroke on the left side and they'd have aphasia. People would have a stroke on the right side and they would have a sort of perceptual problems. So that kind of dichotomy was out there. But what was never seen was that the positive demonstration of hemispheric function. So there, here was the left side that only did verbal and language processing. And here was the right side that was really superior on perceptual functioning. It wasn't a deficit. It was that it had it and the other side did not. That that was the that mm-hmm. was the thing that, that that launched the ships. And um uh and so with that over the years we then added things that the left brain was uh, more specialized for problem solving. The left brain was uh, the right brain was uh, specialized for certain kind of emotional processing, for some kinds of attention management. Uh, there were all these uh, little uh, uh, additions throughout the years which have mounted up to w- what part of the brain seemed to be better than the other. And then what parts of the brain seemed to be uh, – what, what, what human activities seemed to involve both hemispheres uh, – and some kind of cooperation between centers between that would seem to be located in both, and that has been more recent work, but that that seems to be there too. So all of this led to uh, a point where people th- spoke in terms of the modular view of the brain that the, that er- everything is in an information processing world is pushed out into the periphery. You want to get it out of consciousness, out into modules. You want it to have specialized function. Get it out of the stuff that takes CPU time. <laughs> you, know? you want to get it out. And that's how all cognitive systems seem to be built and it seems how the brain's built. And so then we arrive in the 70, late 70s and ask the question, okay, so let's ask, uh, you know, what do these people feel like? when they do something that's coming from their right hemisphere. I mean, they're producing a real behavior. Like, we could uh, we could have the patients sitting in front of the, the kistoscope, what's this gadget was called, that we flash stuff to, mm-hmm. and we could give a simple command like, get up, right, to the right hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And the patient would get up. <laughs> and then we say, well, why are you doing that, Right. And the patient said, oh, um, well, I'm going to go into that. We were outside testing in our van. I'm going to go up and go in the house and get a Coke. And so there, we had snuck a command into their right hemisphere, which isn't in control uh, or isn't in contact with the language and speech hemisphere. So the language and speech hemisphere, we were asking a question to, but it had to make up a story that was consistent with what it was doing that actually came from a separate module, right? So there goes the story. So we did a lot of studies like that and basically said, okay, there's something special in the left hemisphere that we call this interpreter we already talked about. And the interpreter makes up a story to keep a consistent narrative going when one of your other systems does something. So you get the be- what you call I love this the best makes sense story yeah which I think is a really great way and, and two there's this word you use confabulation 
um, which means it makes up stuff. If it doesn't, if it doesn't know something, it makes it up, and it, it it's happy to lie <laughs> if it doesn't right. have the truth. Right, but the the uh, it's it's a dangerous word because there are also also confabulations where uh, people will take any information and just weave it into a story. And that's a confabulatory response. And they, and these patients are not confabulatory. So if I give them in their left hemisphere uh, three unrelated words, a, 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 someone suffering from confabulation will just try to make a storyline out of those three consecutive words that really have no connection whatsoever. These patients say, well, those are three disconnected words. Mm-hmm. So this is much subtler. Mm-hmm. This is where we direct your hand over to the edge of the table, right? <laughs> and your your hands over at the edge of the table now. And I ask you, so uh, you know, Rick, how come how come you moved over there? And you, well, well, <laughs> oh, you know, there's a piece of dirt there. I've been trying to clean there for you know, or you make up something. Mm-hmm. That's subtler than than uh, and than the, the the regular confabulatory thing, but. Once you're on to it, <laughs> you see it everywhere, in yourself, in others. You know, what, what are they doing in there? How do they explain it? I, I, I use the, the example, the, uh, when the stock market closes at four, the confabulation or the storytelling begins. <laughs> well, the stock went down because, the stock went up because when 24 hours earlier, there was no theory about it <laughs> yeah nobody was going to say no oh the stock's going to go up no, nobody no, no one in the house oh, no. well, boy they got a clear uh... anyway well you know i i really like this idea of this you know that we are essentially lean mean storytelling machines yeah and, and now you have this vision of the brain that i think is really interesting because on one hand uh as you said you have this great uh, thing, the uh, the scene from Men in Black, where the guy opens up and there's a little little man inside driving it, yeah. and that's kind of how we all see ourselves. There's a little man inside driving us, but your vision of the brain, I think, is more like the way I see it. You have what you call a neural modules, and they're all doing different processing of very small subsets of data, touch, feel emotions, social interpretations. And I see all these kind of spinning wheels. And at any one, it's like a thousand roulette wheels all going at once. And at any one moment, they all add up to the same number. And that number is me. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) I like that. That's the mystery, though, Mm -hmm. is uh, if if we accept this, this notion that everything is peripheralized and modularized, how do they cooperate to give this unit, uni, unitary experience? And, uh, and there's a very big um, – actually, it's not in the book a lot, but it's kind of the next thing I'm thinking about. It's, it's very important that the, uh, how these systems self-cue each other. Hmm. And um, there's all kinds of cool examples of self-cueing that uh, that one learns studying neurologic patients, and you learn it in spades in studying split-brain patients, because one hemisphere is trying to help the other on what it knows. 
at all times. So there's tr- there's always an attempt to give get the right answer done. Get do what the examiner's saying, even though we've made it hard on them by splitting information between the hemispheres. There's ways of trying to trick uh, and cue the other brain so it can figure out the piece of information it got. The most dramatic example of this, it's just, I flip out every time I see it. Uh, we took one of the patients, and uh, he was a good artist, and he knew a lot about cars. could draw anything you think of. And so we flashed to one half brain the word 1928, uh, the numbers 1928. And to the other hemisphere, we flashed the word car. And that was it. So 1928 to one, one half, car to the other one. And the command was, draw what you see. And we had already established that if you say, what did you see? You say, oh, I saw the word car, because that goes to the left hemisphere. And 1928 goes to the right hemisphere. And he talks out of the left hemisphere, so he can't tell anything about 1928, right? So, but now we're changing the game. We say, just draw what you see. Well, out goes the left hand, and he draws an old 1928 coupe. Car, wow. Right? Now, how does he do that? Right? Well, there has to be an elaborate thing where his eyes aren't closed. His, mm-hmm. So he's looking down. Both hemispheres are seeing what he's doing. And one side knows to kind of start the lines of a car, and the other side must be giving it stop signals, don't go so far, because we're going to get a coupe, and it's an old coupe. And then the other one comes in, well, i got to draw some more. And some strategy is figured out what, which, to get that job done. It's astounding. And, and you, then you just see, so, okay, queuing. So there's self-queuing through separate modules. The queuing is being done in the periphery in lots of examples you can think of within the brain. In this example, it's happening on the piece of paper in front of you. You can see it going on. And yet how it gets it, that job done is, uh, I don't know. That must have been an electric moment for you. I, it is. I, I mean, the the kind of stuff you do, the kind, as I say, the, the kind of experiments you do, are really good at that, uh, at coughing up things that you can just see and intuitively understand. There is something about humans that is really wild and really interesting, but not beyond reason. Right. And right. that's what's so interesting. Yeah, that's true. You, you, we know, but it's not. A reason we can yet understand. So what your experiments, I think, show us is, boy, there's so much more we don't know. And that's what's great. It's uh, we. Oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> we have a lot we don't know. <laughs> now, you, for, for you future neuroscientists out there, don't worry. There will always be a job. <laughs> uh, well, and we haven't even got to, to talking about uh, emergence and the social interactions of the brain because that's where you say um, – we in a, in a solo context, you and me sitting alone, locked alone, alone in a room for the rest of our lives. Free will responsibility means absolutely nothing. It's only in when you get these systems of thousands of spinning roulette, roulette wheels, always somehow mysteriously coughing up the same number, talking to one another. That's a whole new level of emergence, as you call it. So explain what emergence is. Well, the idea of emergence is that. Uh you cannot predict the next level up from the elements that make it up. So 
simple example can be the elements that go into making a clock are gears and all kinds of little devices. And you put them all together and you get a clock out of the deal that has its own principles and levels of description that you would never capture by just looking at how the pieces fit together. So there is something, this is the case for strong emergence, that there's something that comes out of the interaction of parts that has its own rules and self-organization, and you can only understand it at that level. And uh, so there's, there's the physicists like to break it down into weak emergence and strong emergence. And weak emergence, they think there are these new unpredictable levels, but that you can maybe understand it by understanding the parts. In the strong emergence case, you can't. It's just a, a, re- a recognition you can't. And that's an argument that goes on within the physics community is whether there is such a thing as strong emergence. There are only weak emergence examples. But just that that's, we'll go into that in the book, but the, the real thing is that there, there, there are, uh, you take Newtonian mechanics, that is an emergent phenomenon because Newtonian mechanics does not explain quantum matter. Mm-hmm. And quantum matter doesn't explain Newtonian. It works both ways. Quantum mechanics does not predict that you can get a billiard ball out of these things together. And yet, once the billiard ball is formed, which is full of quantum processes, it follows strict laws that the quantum at the quantum level, uh, it's a probabilistic mm-hmm. uh, sort of judgment. So the same is going on. The same analogy is going on uh, uh, through, throughout. And 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 is are you going to get to the point where you might say that uh, neurons are producing a, a a mental state, and the mental state has its own set of laws that will uh, work independently of the neural system, that it has its own layer. And the thought is that while there, it's going to have many unique properties, it is still generated by the brain and still constrains the brain. So that's that's kind of where things are now. Working that out, as I said earlier, is is where the the next bit of time is going to be in uh, in mind brain research. One of the things that's happening as a result of all this uh, neuroscience is that we're getting into uh, the realms of the law. It's entering the courtroom, and we're trying to say, you know, people are and aren't responsible. If you're not responsible. Um, why punish somebody? And you know, there's there's something to that as you say at the very beginning of the book, uh, when a horse bucks, you, you try to stop it from bucking you off. When a car breaks, you fix it. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a difference. And maybe we should apply that to people. And and on, in some cases, sure, it's clearly true that somebody's brain has a physical malfunction. The, the Texas Tower shooter is a good example of that. He went and said, something wrong with me. Please stop me. And afterwards, mm-hmm. they found out there was something wrong with him. But yeah. You say you make a strong argument for personal responsibility and legal responsibility. Yeah. So the the where I go where I go is that that uh, the most deterministic view of the brain does not say that uh, that we are not responsible for our actions. That we're just along for the ride. We're just a bunch of robots, right? with a fancy consciousness that uh, our particular neurons, our particular building elements can pull off. But that's not it, because responsibility is a social rule that comes from people interacting. 
So the metaphor I like to use is we know about cars and we have a physical deterministic understanding of how cars work. And now we're going to try to understand the laws of traffic. Well, you can study a car to your blue in the face, and you're not going <laughs> to you're not going to get the laws. That's another level. That's a, that's how what happens when cars interact is new level, a new emergent level there. And so the same idea is that, that I like to say is that uh, brains are automatic. We're learning how they work, but people are free because it's when people get together that they have established these rules of engagement, which is that I'm going to hold you responsible for your actions. You're going to hold me. You know that rule. And your ability to follow rule, no matter what kind of neurologic state you're in or mental state, is pretty, pretty universal. Will there be exceptions? There's always exceptions. Uh, although I'm real tough on the exceptions. But but uh, if we could get 99.9999% of this thing understood by responsibility as a function of the social group, that's where to look for it, not in brains. Then how we ultimately deal with uh, 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 issues in justice seem to me different. We quickly determine if Jones is the agent of the crime. And then we go on to the next question, which is a social judgment. What do we do about it? Do we punish him? Do we treat him? Uh, as science moves on, maybe we can even cure him. Okay, let's say all those options are available. It is a social decision that we'll all make as to what we're going to do. Because right now there's a lot of people uh, who, if they see Jones harmed their member of their family, and one of the options is to cure him. I don't want to cure him. No, they want to. You, you talk about the three kinds of judgment there, and I think right. that's a really interesting discussion. Yeah, and that, but that's a discussion I think we should move to, mm -hmm. uh, and and I think we should think about whether we can uh, think of a lot of. Uh, uh, criminal acts as having a neurologic dimension to it. We're not really there yet on that at all. So that's why I also say in the book that neuroscience is a little too early to bring into the courtroom. It, it just doesn't have this stuff nailed down with enough high probability uh, uh, observation that it, it, it's not DNA by a long shot. And uh, so... But it's coming. It, it will arrive, and the and the issues are so momentous that people should start thinking about it now. What the, what how they want to think about it. I've been speaking with Michael Gazaniga. His new book is "Who's in Charge: Free Will in the Science of the Brain." Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.